Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 68. And have you ever wondered what is happening today in the financial technology realm, also known as fintech, and how cryptocurrency and blockchain technology could impact your business? Well, that's exactly what we're here to talk to Brad Yassar about today. He has sold a few businesses and has been a programmer since he was a kid. Now he runs a company called Blockchain Investors Consortium. And he is on the show today to talk about his couple exits and how blockchain technology could revolutionize the the way that we exchange goods and services and how it could impact every industry and business today. So if you're interested in where the future of financial technology is going and where your business and where you fit into the future, listen up because Brad's got a lot of really good things to say. So without further ado, here's my interview with Brad. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Good morning, Brad. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Ryan. Yourself? Doing good. Super excited to have you on the show today. You've got a lot of experience in a, in a lot of different areas that I want to get your insights on. You've been a serial entrepreneur for quite a while. And for the listeners, can you kind of take us back and give us a little bit of a rundown on how you became an entrepreneur and where you started? Of course. So I've been an entrepreneur all my life. And I literally mean that. Uh, The the journey started when I was six. Uh, My dad said, do you want a new bike or a computer? And I didn't know what a computer was, but I already had a bike. So I said, computer. (laughs) Then this uh, personal computer came into our house and um, changed my life forever. Because uh, at those days, this is three and a half decades ago, um, there were no app downloads, no free software, nothing that you could actually access through the computer. It was all cassette tapes and uh, discs and floppy disks and all that good stuff that doesn't exist anymore. But um, you had to actually go and physically buy software to run it on your computer. I don't know if you can relate to that, but in, in that paradigm, I realized really quick that the three pieces of software my computer came with all could only entertain me for just a few weeks <laughs> and started looking to do more with this box that set and had a keyboard on it. And I started programming as a result. I, I bought a book about you know basics of programming, got uh, a little bit more advanced and and I really enjoyed it. I was passionate about it. So I started programming, which turned into a software business because um, one of the first business software I wrote was uh, was widely you know accepted and used by retailers uh, and that started my journey as an entrepreneur not by design or because I was a brilliant businessman but just because I stumbled across this box that could do whatever I told it to do as long as I knew how to uh, speak its language which I, I quickly learned. So that was my first foray into entrepreneurship, creating software, sales of software, distribution. And it was fascinated because I was just fascinated by this device. I upgraded my systems uh, almost every year and, and got better at programming, learned different languages. I think I started with basic, then jumped to Fortran, C. I even took it to the level of uh, coding directly into uh, the computer with machine language for <laughs> motor all at 68,000 series chips. So that was my beginning. And then that excitement around uh, creating a brand new business and taking an idea and turning it into something people care about and want to pay you for continued uh, after uh, I finished my uh, higher education and college studies. I started another business. Um, That one didn't really take off. We pivoted. It took off much uh, stronger after the pivot. Exited that one, wanted to learn sales, learned sales, started another consulting business this time. It wasn't in the technology, but I've always had this uh, fascination with hardware and software, and that drove the, uh, the quest to 
become a better entrepreneur and, and lately become uh, an investor, a better investor and a b- better resource for the projects I get involved with. That's awesome. I mean, it, what a what an evolution. I, I think, you know, the experience you've had on a lot of those different fronts, we can we can dive into a little bit. And because I want to maybe end with some of the things that you're doing in today's technology. But like, you know, let's, let, you know, Brad, when you had sold the software business, you knew and you had these different various businesses, you know, what was the things, you know, first of all, what were the ideas or things that you experienced as you were exiting? You know, how, you know, the software business, how was that valued versus like the consulting company? You know, what were some of the things that triggered you to sell them? And then what were some of the takeaways that you had? Well, I had two interesting experiences exiting a business. First one was out of pure necessity. I was 15 and I wanted to focus on my studies because the uh, the software business that I had accidentally built became a little too big to be um, managed by me or or the people involved, the team. So that wasn't a planned one. It was more like, do I want to, you know, quit school and focus growing this business, or do I want to focus on school? I chose schooling because I knew there was a lot more to learn than uh, writing code and selling it to. Uh, to people who enjoyed using it and benefited from it. So that was um, a short planning phase. It was a small exit. There wasn't a lot of tax planning or any of the necessary steps that now, knowing what I know now, I would recommend people do. So that was quick. Uh, You know, again, I I exited the business, focused on my studies, and, and it was great because it was a really good learning experience. The second exit I had was even less planned, <laughs> but at least I was acutely aware of uh, tax uh, repercussions in, in, in what would happen if I had a big check land on, on my lap uh, because I had already been working. Mind you, the first one, I was in school. I, wasn't, I didn't have any working experience. The second one was after I finished uh, my, my college studies in uh, had a better idea, you know, how the government wanted to do things uh, <laughs> in the context of, you know, taxation yeah. and, and what they're looking for. So the, the second one, we did a little bit more planning because uh, we had time to entertain the offer and respond to it. It was it was our beta client that said, we want to buy you. This technology is amazing. And we can go into what the technology was. But briefly, it was a big data play that predicted future purchases of the existing clients of uh, big box retailers. But um, because we had at least uh, six to 12 months to plan for it, although it went a lot faster, we were able to uh, create the, the, the structure internally as well as on a personal level to um, minimize certain things that, uh, that help in the wrong, long run. Because if you suddenly, you know, if you're making a couple hundred grand a year, you're doing great. And suddenly you receive, as you know, a, a really large check, uh, you could be giving more than half of that to the government <laughs> yeah. before you even receive it. Like before it lands into your account, <laughs> there may be uh, uh, an inquiry waiting there uh, if uh, IRS is doing their job well in uh, tracking these things. And, and of course, I'm, um, I'm all for paying my taxes and being in good standing with, uh, with the, the government that uh, supports us with infrastructure and, and everything we take for granted. But obviously, a little planning goes a long way. And, and you know, if you can maybe reduce that in half, why not do it? So we worked with a couple mentors who were in the taxation space, tax accountants, and, and they created a structure where we weren't being hit with that immediate uh, sales tax or capital gains tax uh, off the bat, and uh, and we were able to do a more phased approach and and manage that uh, liability and responsibility accordingly. What was a, what was the actual structure? Was it different, like entity or corporate structures, or is there like advanced estate planning and trusts involved, or what? What was something? If if you don't mind explaining a little bit more. Um. So at that time, I did not realize how 
uh, favorable our tax code is uh, to companies as opposed to individuals. Mm -hmm. As an individual, uh, there, there are several things that you cannot even consider an expense or write off, whereas for, for a company, it's a no-brainer. So, um, you know, for example, legal fees. If you have high legal fees as an individual, you can't write them off on your individual taxes. If you have any legal fees as a business, it's, uh, it's an expense. So that comes right off the top of your, of your um, taxes when, when it's being calculated. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like that, just as, as much as I recall, I mean, this was a couple decades ago, but we uh, ended up doing other business entities that, uh, that instead of individual or ownership, we uh, distributed ownership to, for each partner to other entities. And then when the, uh, when the exit happened, the, the payout hit those accounts, mm-hmm. which, which wasn't a personal, you know, uh, mm-hmm. so we were, we paid the minimum capital gains tax on it because that was the first, uh, money into those entities, which delayed the, uh, higher tax, uh, amounts mm-hmm. from being, uh, you know, held on, on that transaction. And then that distributed, uh, model, also thought me I, I, that I can have a business that pays for a lot of things in my life without having to uh, get that money out as a person, mm-hmm. as an individual. So since then, I always had uh, had a holding company that uh, you know pays for things and makes sure me and my family are are, are in good shape. At the same time, managing the taxation uh, slightly better than I would be able to do by myself as an individual. It's amazing. Yeah, it the more the more moving parts you have, the and the more strategy you have behind that. It's amazing. Some like you said, it's crazy fair, favorable if you've got the right strategy in place. Yeah, I mean, there was some uh, estate planning. Obviously, uh, at that time, I was in my early 20s. So estate planning really didn't make much sense. I mean, later on in life, I think I may lean more towards uh, building a, a, a trust fund and and do more estate planning in that regard, as opposed to uh, keeping things as liquid as possible, but in a corporate structure. But at that time, it made sense to just uh, go in the direction of turning it into a business transaction and again uh, paying the appropriate taxes for that transfer and still having full access to uh, the funds and stuff yeah yes yeah. so kind of curious because obviously what you had built uh, in your business with the coding or the intellectual property was extremely valuable for your beta client to reach out and and uh, want to purchase you maybe you know, what are some of your insights on, did you intend or did you foresee that to happen when you were building it? Was it more about the passion or was it more about, you know, you knew you're going to eventually sell this and, you know, you had someone else in mind and they came to the table first. What was the kind of the triggering event in your mindset going into it? Um, again, I, I was actually disappointed at that event because I wanted to go out and sell my product and learn how to sell this and become a better salesperson because I believe in the product. So it, it I've, I've never started a project or invest, well, maybe invested, but personally, I've never started a project where my goal was to exit. You know, if, mm-hmm. if your only purpose starting a business is exiting, I think you're going to have a rough patch until that exit comes because all you're going to focus on is, oh, I need to do this and I need to get to this revenue and this valuation and then find these clients. Now, some advanced planning for an exit and understanding how you can exit is absolutely a must. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not diminishing the value of some a, advanced planning and, and foresight into it. If the only reason you're starting a new, um, I don't know, phone business is to sell it in three years or five years, it's not going to be a fun journey. And I've always got involved because I uh, really wanted to work with the people that I got involved with because I valued them as friends or as, as business partners, or I was extremely passionate about what I was doing. Yeah, same well as said. now. Like I, I work sixteen-hour days now and seven days a week, and not one day feels like I'm working. 
I mean, people say, oh, you're working too much because they see me <laughs> being productive seven days of the week and they know they can call me anytime. But I don't feel like, oh, I have to go to work. And I think if, again, if your sole purpose is to make money or sell something, I think it's going to, again, I've never been in that situation. So I don't know personally, but to me, it feels like that's going to feel very burdensome and, and angst ridden until you reach that point where you can exit. I think you said that really well, Brad, because uh, it's almost the, you know, the, the per- private equity firms or some angel investors or VCs, they, it's like the sharks, right? Where it's just about the money and it's not about the people, the product, the community, the clients, which, you know, it becomes very cold at that point where the goal is to have a passion and a purpose in the community, but then also understand the technical ways that you can actually get yourself out so you're not trapped. But you have to be passionate, otherwise it's going to be just a miserable journey. Yes, yes. I mean, to, to answer your previous question, because I don't think I completely answered it, you do want to have a, a, a strategy around your IP. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're developing IP, uh, it, it, it's it's very important to understand what uh, what role that's going to play. Lately, in the technology field, there's a lot of white labeling and licensing and uh, shortcuts that people can take, which did not ex- exist when I was, you know, mm-hmm. writing code and developing things. But uh, I think that could be uh, an advantage at the early stages of any business if you don't have to build the back bone of your business and you can just rent it or if you don't have to buy a bunch of hardware you can just put it on amazon web servers and and you're good to go that jump starts you but there is an inflection point where you are a business that has revenue ideally profitable growing where you should start thinking about well what would be the impact of of owning my own ip and developing the tools internally uh, that I've been leasing or renting from other companies. Because that, if you don't ask yourself that question, you may have a billion dollar business that's running on Amazon Web Services. And, you know, when you go to sell it, you're not going to get a billion dollars for it because they're going to look at the revenue and your expenses and see, hey, Amazon is taking half of this, uh, uh, you know, billion dollars that's coming in or whatever may be the case. Whereas if if you catch that inflection point and you have the um, revenues or, or the investor support to build things internally, then you own them. And that's a very powerful position to be when you're considering an exit, because now you're not just a service business or a SaaS business. You are a technology company because you own your technology. Perfectly said. <laughs> Couldn't agree with you more. And I, I think that's a perfect segue into you know some of your uh, experience, because th- I think that inflection point that you're talking about, Brad, and I think a lot of people don't necessarily look at it like that because there's a, so many service businesses out there or software businesses that, like you said, have been building either without the end in mind, which has a lot of challenges and they're, they're not necessarily understanding the value of building that IP or that technology themselves and understanding how to become the technology company themselves. And there's a lot of challenges because the service business isn't as worth as much as you've got IP or systems or automation. You've migrated over from service to technology. So you want to maybe give us a couple examples that you've seen where people have successfully done that and what that's done to the business or how they go to market? I knew this question was coming. So I've been thinking and jogging my memory. I think uh, a very well-known example of that is the uh, the rental company. Uh, I'm drawing a blank. What's um, Renner's Warehouse or uh, you're talking about residential properties or you're talking no, about um, air- short term, short term a- a- Airbnb. Airbnb. Yep. Airbnb is the prime example that popped in my head uh, because they have scraped and used uh, Craigslist data information and users for the first six months or a year of their existence because it was easier for them instead of reacquiring those users and re-entering that data that already exists there it was easier for them to scrape it not build a you know not build the same thing build something superior on top of the data and structure that they piggybacked on 
And then when the right time came, which was when Craigslist uh, probably decided to take action, start building their own intake process. Because initially, when they were just scraping the data and bringing that in, there were quality issues with the images and and, and, uh, issues with onboarding, because you're just getting raw data from Mm -hmm. someone else's site without necessarily their authorization. And that's not high quality data. But that launched the business for them. And once they reached that inflection point or critical mass where they had enough users, they could afford to send photographers to go get uh, pictures, really professional pictures of the inventory that they have. And they could afford to advertise and onboard users directly to their site, which meant they had to build all that uh, on the back end while they were doing this automated scraping growth hacking uh, when they launched. And that, that I think, is a very uh, understandable and clear example of, uh, I mean, I'm not recommending you scrape other people's sites in, in without their authorization and do that, but it's a, it's a very clever way to start a business without having too much investment in, in the services or the people or the back end. And once you reach the critical mass to activate all those things, which you've planned for, I mean, they, they understood that they couldn't just exist as, as a site that just uh, scrapes data from Craigslist because eventually they'll change their algorithms, their storage models, uh, the way they you know, serve things on the website, and that wouldn't be uh, feasible, which happened, but they were prepared for it and they just moved it to the next level as soon as that happened. Well, and I think, you know, that's a great example that everybody's aware of. And I, and I think it's applicable to any industry and any company that starts in some sort of service, whether it's consulting or software, whatever it is that, you know, like there's software that you can white label, like you said, or you can integrate, you know, some sort of platforms or something to change your business, to make your products and services more valuable. But, you know, understanding how to make that pivot from a service-based business to a technology business, I think scares the heck out of a lot of people. Cause they don't, they don't want to go recreate it or they've heard of, you know, someone hiring a coding company that'll then come in at cost and forever, you know, a bunch of stuff, but then it doesn't actually go to market it and, and is actually viable. So it's a good way to kind of scale up and test the market in, in a minimal viable way without having to do the investments, like you said. Yeah. And you can, you can actually do, do a halfway approach where you build some of your technology that you definitely need to build. And we've done this with a couple projects where we would build the UI UX, which is the most important part because that's what people experience and and maybe build a couple features that we see as differentiators that don't uh, ideally exist today out there in the, in the industry we're trying to uh, enter. And the back end use as much of the white labeling or uh, available tools as we can. So it may be slower. It may not be the best technology for what we're trying to do, but it gets us through the first uh, year of the, 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 uh, the company. And once we are done with the first year and there's a user base, there is an easier case to make to potential investors and to partners about rebuilding the back end to speed things up, to create more adoption, to be able to handle more users and more, more customers. That's an easier story to sell than saying, hey, I need $20 million seed because I'm going to build this amazing technology. <laughs> right, right. And I think what, what's really cool is that this is applicable to you know a lot of the software companies or the startups that are, that are growing these days, but I, I actually think, Brad, that there's a huge opportunity for the up and down the street businesses, whether it's, you know, HVAC or plumbing or ser- any kind of service businesses that have a customer base, they've got a service or they sell products, but they don't have a differentiating technology platform to look at their customers and say, hey, you know, what is it the problems that they're going to be solving or that, that, that the, the customers are having and being able to use their current cash flow and their current clients to, to kind of like bootstrap it together to become, like you said, a technology company. Have you seen any examples out there of people that are kind of combining both the traditional businesses and the software businesses or, you know, doing the kind of evolution that we're talking about? Um, yeah, I mean, I think an interesting 
maybe not exactly what you're talking about, but an in- interesting example could be Geico. Uh, Geico used to be uh, an insurance company that serviced government employees, hence the name. And they had a period where they had to either sink or swim because the newer insurance companies were uh, attacking the whole insurance market uh, with brand new technologies that enabled them to do things much faster and and, and more uh, efficiently from a cost perspective. So they rebranded and built this amazing website and they completely rebranded themselves and opened it up to the whole general public in the country. And now it's one of the biggest uh, insurance providers, as far as I know. I mean, I'm not Mm -hmm. following the insurance market closely, so I I wouldn't be able to give you exact numbers. But their transformation from a, a brick and mortar insurance company to almost exclusively online now, a company that services a much larger portion of the population was, I think, uh, very interesting to study and and see because without the technology they built, they wouldn't be able to do what uh, they they were able to do. Well, and I think it's a it's a really good example because it takes investment and it takes time and it takes looking more than just the short term to do the investment and do the pivot, like you said. Because I mean, looking at the long term. And seeing the competitive threats hopefully should kind of scare you into the innovation that you need to do. Because otherwise, one day it's just going to be too late and you are going to sink and you're not going to have the chance to swim, kind of like, like you said. Uh, same thing Same thing with, uh, with Walmart. I mean, if we want to talk about recognizable names, Walmart has uh, done the same thing. I don't remember what the latest numbers were, but Walmart started as a brick and mortar store. And now I think a considerable chunk of its sales is online mm-hmm. through Walmart.com. And they were really late in, in into the game. I mean, they, they just realized that was uh, pretty much mandatory after uh, Amazon started uh, eating into their, their business and their market share. And, and again, they've implemented a pretty streamlined online presence in uh, I think that part of the business is growing and rest is, is shrinking. Well, and I think that's a great example. And, I, and I, it's a it's a nice little segue into some of your experience and where you focus most of your 16-hour days these days. Um, and that's some crazy innovative technology that's got a lot of hype these days on uh, from the Bitcoin to the cryptocurrency and the blockchain. And before we go straight into the jargon, the reason I want to you know, dive into this, and I think you got a lot of insight is because there's these technologies out there that are coming, regardless of whether people want them to or not, and how it's going to change the landscape of how we do commerce and how the businesses operate today. I think you can, you know, help shed some light on what's coming down the pipeline. So when people look at their business, and they look about where they're going to compete, understanding what's going to be available and, and the opportunities out there, I think you'll be able to help us with that. So Maybe if you want to just give us like, you know, a little one-on-one of, you know, where you live and how you uh, interact in this, the blockchain world, and then also maybe a little bit of a, you know, one-on-one of exactly what it is. Yeah, definitely. So blockchain is a, a distributed ledger technology. Uh, ledger is, as you, you may know, if you took any accounting, a, doc, uh, a document where you keep track of your transactions. So money in, mm-hmm. money out, loans in, loans out, uh, whatever transactions your business has. A distributed ledger is uh, just a fancy way of saying instead of the ledger, the digital ledger residing in one computer, bits and pieces of it reside on hundreds of computers. So there's a little bit of uh, cloud computing kind of uh, feel to it, but it's uh, slightly superior to cloud computing because even cloud computing is not distributed. There are data centers and a lot of computers that do the computing for your cloud. With the distributed model, it could be my computer, your computer, someone's computer in England, another computer in Italy, and we all hold the same ledger, bits and pieces of it. And uh, when there are changes, we all verify the change. So blockchain is uh, effectively uh, a technology that can disrupt every business model, 
every organizational model right now because it eliminates the need for having a central authority or a central physical space to hold this valuable information. Um, that's 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 uh, it's huge. Easiest, I think <laughs> that's the easiest way of uh, putting it in perspective. And the name blockchain comes from the fact that data is written to this ledger in blocks that are chained to each other. So once one block is written, it becomes immutable and you can't change it. So you write a block and then a few computers verify it so that you're not putting false information onto the blockchain. And once that verification is complete, then you write the next block, but you chain it to the previous one, which locks the previous one in its state, whatever state it's in. So this way you have a decentralized computing uh, phenomenon that's immutable. Uh, the, the, you can always track the transactions. No one is going to be able to go in and uh, change past things or, or make false uh, claims on, on whatever transactions were verified. And that, in Bitcoin's case, has allowed us to use Bitcoin as a store and transfer of value. Basically, any monetary instrument, whether it's gold coins, paper money, credit cards, or Bitcoin, is a storage and transfer of value uh, tool. You know, if I have yep. one gold coin, I know exactly what the value is because I can go and check what gold is worth and how much it weighs. And I know what how much value is stored in that one uh, unit that I have. Same thing with, with Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. Because it's encrypted and it's very hard for third parties, you know, th there's a lot of news about, you know, parity wallet being hacked or things like that. Th that's different. There's always going to be shenanigans anytime you mm -hmm. have something valuable that uh, people are, are uh, storing and uh, exchanging. But aside from that, as far as the technology is concerned, everything is encrypted and there's no easy way of me going into your computer or into your digital wallet and taking what you have in there. So I can't go in and take your Bitcoin out of your wallet unless you give me the key to do it. And so it creates this really interesting new paradigm where you don't need a government to back a, a paper currency. You don't need a bank to guarantee lines of credit or guarantee the the transfer of, of the value you're storing with them. You can store the value on a small device the size of a USB stick and take it wherever you want with you. And when I say store value, there is no limitation to that value. So you, for the first time, in the history, you can you can take a, a billion dollars onto a USB stick, walk across the border and, you know, exchange it for some local currency and continue your existence without having to uh, explain to anyone or go through anyone's uh, trials and tribulations to wire your own money from one country to the other or uh, do any of that. I mean, are there potentially negative uses of this technology? Absolutely. Any technology can be used for good or bad, but I firmly believe uh, the good that's going to come out of uh, this democratization of fundraising and being able to be uh, financially independent, bankable, have access to loans and funds, uh, you know, that's that's going to change uh, a lot of people. Change our world. Change yeah. everything. It It's so crazy, man. And, and this is why I, I think I think people don't know the ramifications of and when you look at, first of all, the industries that could potentially dissipate because they're no longer when they're no longer the central authority that they might need or they're the middleman in a lot of these transactions because the whole economy, every business is based on goods and services being exchanged. And there's always people in the middle of that that either monetize the exchange or make it more complicated. And you know, I just, I, I mean, the, 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 how you extrapolate how this changes industries or maybe what would be a good way to dive further into this is maybe give your explanation of the authorities and like what they do and the, the difference between like an authoritative system like this versus the decentral and like how it would even just change and what type of commerce it would change. 
Um, well, you put it really nicely. This intermediation is going to be big in a lot of industries where there's a lot of middlemen. And uh, with today's technology, it doesn't make a lot of sense why, why they're there to be honest with you. Um, the, the simplest example is a real estate transaction. So right now, if you wanted to buy or sell real estate, there is at least five different parties that you need to pay <laughs> as well as interact with in the United States. Mm -hmm. That's our, you know, you need to have an escrow agent. You need to have a, a broker. You need to sometimes have two brokers because each party has, uh, has their own uh, team in place. Then you need to have a title agent. You need to have a uh, a person who carries the documents because, you know, by law, they need to be uh, hand delivered or, or certified delivered, whatever it's called. I mean, there's five, six people that live, breathe and make a living just through one transaction, which is I'm giving you money to get the deed of a property and the keys of a property from you. <laughs> All right. So bring blockchain into the mix, uh, not Bitcoin, but Ethereum has something called smart contracts. And smart contracts are basically uh, business contracts right, written in code and that can self-execute if certain conditions are met. So on the Ethereum blockchain, we can create a solution and it's already been created, but we can create a solution where you say, I've escrowed this money and escrowing of the money happens because if you use cryptocurrency, again, these are smart contracts and they can escrow themselves. So you, you send your Ethereum into a wallet. That wallet doesn't release it, but has a smart contract attached to it and says, okay, Brad, he sent his money. Now you go and give him the deed and the key. And you can even put the deed on a digital format on the blockchain. So automatically the deed goes to you and I give you the key. And as soon as I give you the key, you know, you say, okay, I have it and escrow is done. There's no other people between the two of us. It's peer to peer. <laughs> so I, I gave you, you gave me your money. I gave you my property and we both got what we wanted. There were no shenanigans. No one got ripped off. And it was done through two, three smart contracts. And there, it's there, fully it's, dis distributed, right? So then you can't it's change fully, it. It's, it's, it's transparent. It's fully distributed. You're not going back on anything. And there's no uh, human error or, or judgment involved. It's just a piece of code that says if this amount of Ethereum is deposited to this address, then the deed that resides on this block of the chain gets sent to this address. And that's it. Think really about, simple. oh, I just, I, it, it's, it's so mind boggling, but then also exciting to think about, first of all, how many different industries could potentially go out of business in that one situation, title companies, real estate agents, insurance. I mean, it, it touches everything because all we're doing is exchanging goods and services and no longer, I mean, the paper, we used to own a copier business. You don't need paper for any of that stuff either. And nope. it's just mind boggling to think about, first of all, if you're in one of those intermediary businesses or you own a business like that to think about when and how your the life of your business will potentially change is, is is one thing. But then also if you're in a business where a lot of that gets, you know, it suffocates the profitability of your business because you're providing goods and services that you don't no longer need that kind of information. Is there maybe some examples of some businesses that you can see or industries that you can see that will really thrive when they no longer have to deal with all of that logistical garbage? Well, logistics international trade is is one of them because right now international trade is commoditized there's a fixed price on full-size containers fixed price on half-size containers uh people own these ships that can carry tens of thousands of containers and i mean that market is going down because by the time you have all the loading and unloading and tracking and everything happened again there's five six entities that are touching uh, the process and need to get some profit out of it. 
if you could put the whole thing on the blockchain and you can track and it's immutable, again, it's automated. Obviously, you would have to have some oracles and Oracle is a, another piece of software node that interacts with uh, things outside of the blo blockchain. So you could, you could have a, a structure where all this is automated and I know the shipping industry is going into automation quicker than we think because it's easier to just satellite uh, mm -hmm. captain the ships from one port to the other without having to rely on people on the ship doing it. O of course, you need to have some people for those emergencies and what have you. I mean, open seas, who knows what can happen. But aside from that, now we don't need people to know where they're going or, or captain a ship. It's, it's all satellite tracking and command center kind of approach. One step further, you automate it more, you're going to unlock more profitability because now the whole transaction can be tracked on, on a distributed ledger on the blockchain and, and be much more secure than one party passing documents to the other. Those documents can be forged. Those documents can be falsified. Uh, you could have a lot of issues. And there's uh, even now, because I've been involved with international trade at different times of my life, there's still containers getting lost. I mean, we, we don't know where they go because something happens either intentionally or unintentionally and your goods uh, don't end up where they need to. And it's really hard to track because it's a very paper driven and manual process. Now, if that were not to be the case, again, the cost savings on insurance and on, on, on payroll and things like that could amount to a significant change. Um, a, another industry that's uh, going to get uh, well, disrupted. Very seriously, it's very seriously affected. Is going to be financial services and banking. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, there's two plus billion unbanked people in the world, and that's that's a huge problem because these people are still dealing with cash, still getting robbed, still putting their lives on the line to protect that money that they made or have because they don't have access to the tools that we take for granted in, in our country. Well, with blockchain, because you don't have to have a branch, you don't have to hire a bunch of people, you don't have to do a lot of the things that traditional banks need to do to verify identity and verify legitimacy of the funds and verify individuals and verify transactions, those people are suddenly going to be able to have access to loans, to financing, to accounts. I'm not saying bank accounts because I foresee those being digital wallets online somewhere, secure mm -hmm. digital wallets where they can store the value they created. So they're not going to have the need to touch any paper money, which is much safer and it's going to be much more enabling for them because for the first time, the, the real value those people create with their activities in their daily lives is going to be trackable. You know, with, with cash, you may make uh, $50,000 somewhere in Africa, but you're stashing your cash in, uh, in a pillow somewhere <laughs> and you're not reporting it to anyone for the fear of someone coming and taking it away from you. Mm -hmm. Uh, so no one knows what value you've created a uh, course of a year. So you don't get loans. So you don't get financing. So you don't get any help from any financial institution. Whereas if they knew you had 50 grand, they would give you a line of credit. They would give you a credit card. They would give you all these tools that really make uh, transactional uh, processes much safer and quicker. But and as you say, all of this stuff is literally, it's like the, the mundane bullshit that we all hate doing, which is exchanging of payroll documents, tracking, all that stuff literally just kind of goes away. I mean, it's all the worst parts about owning a business is all the crap that you got to do in between it, other than just providing your goods and services to someone else. Yes. Yes. So I, I'm a firm believer in the potential good that the blockchain technologies, maybe not any of the cryptocurrencies that we have today, because there, there may be a, a very rapid evolution of, uh, of Bitcoin and Ethereum, and there are some really interesting ones coming up uh, in the future. We may not even know what's going to be the next big blockchain structure and cryptocurrency that's going to change things for us, but I know the technology uh, as a whole is going to be as 
disruptive, if not much more disruptive than uh, what the internet did to brick and mortar businesses in the 90s. Right, right. And I, and I, I think, Brad, and I don't know if you've read the book Innovators by Walter Isaacson. Um, I it's know. it's a really cool book and and, and for the listeners, um, it, what it, what what and he Isaacson's the guy that wrote the book uh, Jobs and Benjamin Franklin etc. Yeah. And he uh, he brings the the computer and the World Wide Web from ground up and he explores the World Wide Web when it came out. I mean there was like little micro webs and they all got connected together and then there was the Internet Protocol that kind of changed how everything was recorded and moved around and. When I and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is just kind of my elementary view of it, where you've got the blockchain, which is kind of like the internet, you know, infrastructure, but then you've got the cryptocurrencies that allow all that to happen, and that's kind of like the the underneath of the the World Wide Web, where once they once they took these little DARPAnet, the DARPAnet, and they connected everything, then it was like okay, no one cares about the ARPANET or the DARPAnet because it's the whole thing, and that's where like the the web came from, and where now we're just trying to figure out. What's the best way to exchange information? Um, I don't know if that's somewhat accurate or um... no. No, I mean it's it's a, it's an interesting viewpoint. Of course, when the different little networks connected and uh, the the IP protocol uh, started governing everything, that opened it up. Right now, I I don't think uh, we're there yet with blockchain. Um, there are a couple of projects uh, working on connecting or connecting different blockchains, but uh, you you you're on the right track. As soon as uh, more of the main blockchains are interconnected and talk to each other, uh, that's gonna that's gonna create uh, more of a momentum for the adoption curve. But more importantly, internet became very widely used when when we had the UI moment. Uh, mm -hmm. Some people call it the Netscape moment. When Netscape came and people could access the Internet without typing any lines of command and things like that, that really enabled mainstream adoption. And we're still waiting on our UI moment or Netscape moment in the blockchain space where an interface so simple and, and attractive comes along that everyone wants to use it. For, for whatever purpose. And then once that happens, uh, that's going to bring everything together. I love it. I know we're running short on time here and I could keep going for hours. So I'll, I'll uh, kind of wrap this up. <laughs> but if there's, you know, one thing that you would leave our listeners with, Brad, on how this kind of technology would, have, you know, and how they view their current business that they own and how their the value of the business and their exit options will be impacted by some of this technology what would be the one thing you'd probably either highlight or uh, um, leave us with? Well, I'm biased, but uh, I've seen nothing but uh, amazing return on anything blockchain since 2009 when I got introduced to Bitcoin. And, and I would highly recommend uh, people with existing businesses, whether you're planning an exit or not, uh, do some research on how this technology can impact your business and industry and be on the forefront of that change. Because if you don't build it, you don't adopt blockchain, someone else is going to build it and disrupt your industry and your business. So while you have the subject matter expertise, uh, you have still an advantage over the tech people who are looking into these things. And, and you have an opportunity to be a leader, however small you may be in your industry right now. I love it. Brad, what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Um, you can uh, you can email me at brad at crowdmentor.com. That's crowd with a K. Or uh, you can tweet at me, uh, send me a message. Uh, my information is out there. Cool. And I'll put it in the show notes. Brad, absolutely had a blast on the show. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope everybody enjoyed the interview with Brad. I have so many takeaways and you could probably tell that I would go on for hours if I didn't have a hard stop, but I want to really boil it down to three main things that I believe you should take away from Brad's interview. And the first one, I think at the first part of the interview, he had some amazing points about the correlation between passion and awareness of your exit strategy, that just owning a business and looking at the numbers and looking at the money is not what it's all about, which I think most of us already do believe that because we have built the businesses and 
you, most entrepreneurs have a, an innate passion for whatever it is that they do, the goods or services, the problems they're solving, but then also being aware and acutely aware of un, where your exit options and the strategies may or may not come from. So that way you have control over your whole situation and then being able to balance those two in a way that's a, it's a healthy way. Second takeaway that I had was the technology that Brad is talking about has really been hitting the mainstream. Everybody's probably hearing the Bitcoin and all the cryptocurrencies that are out there, but the blockchain behind it that is actually facilitating the ability to have the exponential growth of the Bitcoin, the blockchain is really what what could totally change the world we live in. And if you think about the, the real estate example that he gave, all the stuff that is a miserable part of being an entrepreneur, whether it's payroll or APAR, the, the transactions, the cutting the checks, the bank lines of credit, all that stuff goes away in a different, and it evolves into different ways of facilitating the goods and services. So where understanding where you fit in that entire puzzle is extremely important because this stuff is going to continue to be adopted. And as Brad said, well, the moment that it becomes easily accessible to the general public instead of just the coders and the people behind the scenes is when the the exponential technology of that will start hitting mainstream and disrupting industries in a very significant way. So knowing and being aware of that is just a huge takeaway because you'll be able to be conscious of things and ideas that are coming across in your industry to either seize the opportunity uh, to double down and grow in your industry or to seize the opportunity to get out in case something bad is going to happen from some other competitor that you might not uh, necessarily know where they're coming from. And the third one is the inflection point. And this is for entrepreneurs that want to revolutionize their industry, have the energy and the money and the means to be able to change how things are done. And knowing that there are ways that are available out there to build platforms, build technology, build systems in any industry, whether it's HVAC or if it's service businesses or electrical plumbing and distribution or manufacturing, there's ways to take your processes and your intellectual property and then make them into systems that will then, you can bootstrap based on a tried and true, understanding your tried and true customers and how they can help you do this. And then as things become successful, you can then build your own. So you're not having to sacrifice the entire farm in order to build this out and change. So I really hope you thought the interview with Brad was worth it. I really enjoyed everything that he said. And I think it's so important for us to understand where we fit into the spectrum of this kind of technology, because we can make better decisions as business owners, knowing our industry and what's out there. So until next week, I hope you have a good one.